it's one of the pleasantries of my life. Humor, for example, is so culturally based. You remember about seven years ago when I led my first communion here, I was talking about walking the Grand Canyon and dehydrating, and I was going to draw the parallel between the way the communion nourishes you and um, the way Gatorade nourished me in that occasion. And I stumbled across a ranger, and my roof of my mouth was, was dry, and my tongue was feeling thick and sticking to the roof. And I said, the ranger offered me a drink from his flask. And uh, after the service, there were about 40 people lined up saying, when you're going on your next hike, I'd really like to join you. And I had no idea that in Americanese, a flask re re refers to uh, alcohol. So, you know. So sometimes I think I'm saying something very funny and everybody just sits and looks at you. And other times I say something that I think is completely serious, and the congregation roars with laughter. But a serious event for me was uh, conducting a multiracial conference for pastors. Uh, one afternoon, we had some free time, and this was in South Africa, and a group of us went for a walk through the adjoining sugarcane fields. About eight of us, maybe four black men and four white men, we were laughing and joking and kidding with each other, and a deep sense of camaraderie built up between us. And uh, then we began discussing serious issues of a personal nature and things about our ministries, the wrestling that we were doing with God's will for our lives. And about 30 minutes into this, I was walking next to a black man, a brother, and he took my hand and held it. And went on talking as if, you know, nothing's happening. And I froze, quite honestly. My emotions sort of went into a, a wild spin, and I, I didn't know what to think about this. And I looked quickly to see if anybody noticed what was happening, but he just went on holding my hand. And I panicked to some extent until I did a reality check and recall that I had often seen black men holding hands and being good friends as they talked in public. And that had nothing to do with sexuality, but everything to do with friendship. And then the reality struck me, and I, I truly teared up. Because, you see, what he was doing was accepting me as a very deeply loved brother, in an intimate way that no words could possibly convey. And so the cultural at first slapped me in the face. And then it became something very beautiful. Now the book of Acts in chapter 15 concerns cultural change. Changes required by the gospel the immense difficulty in addressing cultural changes and adapting to cultural changes and working as a church with cultural changes. And we should celebrate Acts chapter 15 as 
probably the major turning point in history, in church history. If Acts 15 had not happened, it's very likely that Christianity would be a little Jewish sect meeting in a synagogue somewhere, and you and I as Gentiles, non-Jews, most of us anyway, uh, would be completely outside of the pale of the gospel. And so we both celebrate this event in the book of Acts, and then we learn from it as well. And what we learn is that God goes to immense lengths in order to make the to jump the cultural boundaries of our society, the personal stumbling blocks in our hearts, and it's great to see how he intervened. So our story starts in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. On the day of his ascension, Jesus reaffirmed the great commission that he gave on the day of the resurrection. You, he says, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, well, it's a little self-contained backwater in a vast Roman Empire. Roman Empire spans three continents, and Judaism is this little thing happening in a province of Rome. But the beauty and the glory of Rome was that it allowed religious freedom. It only required that once a year you take a pinch of incense and sacrifice to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. They don't care if you curse him the next breath, if you ignore him the rest of the year, but as a unifying principle, every Roman Every person under Roman citizenship in the empire was required once a year to say Caesar is Lord and make a little sacrifice of incense to him. And these weird Jewish people, they simply refused to do it. They said, only Yahweh is Lord, and for us to do that would be to deny him and so, you can kill us, but we won't be doing it. And there's one famous incident where 4,000 men read a, met a Roman legion coming into Palestine, and they presented themselves and bared their throats and said, we are not going to say Caesar is Lord, so you may as well start killing us right here. And when you've done with us, you'll have to go through every village town and into every dwelling place and kill every man, woman, and child because none of us are going to do it. Oh. So the Romans did something unique. They said the Jews do not need to do that. And they were given permission not to make the sacrifice. And Christianity, of course, in the beginning was within the Jewish religion, under the radar, and so Christians also did not need to do that in the beginning years. So this backwater in the Roman Empire was given special dispensation, and what it tells us is how deeply rooted Judaism was 
in the law of God. So the Great Commission happens in Jerusalem. Well, it's worshiping Christ in the synagogue and in the temple. And at the trial of Jesus, evidently the Romans had no real understanding of what was going on because Pilate washes his hands of the whole sorry mess and says, I want nothing to do with it. That's your business, but you go and do your thing. Now, to jump that first hurdle was not really very difficult because Judea, you see, is uh, the country from which Jerusalem, of which Jerusalem is the capital. The citizens of Jerusalem were, had family connections with strong national and cultural ties to all of Judea. And the clash of culture was along the lines of, oh, look at those country bumpkins, aren't they sweet? And the country bumpkins, bumpkins would say stuff like, oh, those city slickers, they think milk is a white form of Coca-Cola. Laugh, that's a joke. <laughs> See what I mean? Now, when you get to Samaria, it's another story entirely, and you can see the solid, bold line there, because there's deep animosity between Jews and Samaritans. It's historical. It goes back to when the Jews came out of the Babylonian captivity and wanted to re-enter Jerusalem, and Sanballat the Samarian opposed it and fought them and prevented and blocked them. And so they had to rebuild the city with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, and it was those blasted Sumerians who they had to fight. This runs so deep that uh, when John records the incident of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan woman, and the disciples are absolutely flabbergasted that he's talking to a woman and a Samaritan, or if you like, a Samaritan who's a woman at that. And John says very laconically in chapter 4 of his gospel, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the parable of the good Samaritan would have shocked the readers of that story, and they would have had their minds in a tailspin saying, what? A Samaritan who helped? You must be nuts. Now imagine the dynamics of going to the ends of the earth. Imagine that the gospel must not just go to Samaria, but beyond Samaria. Samaritans are sort of first cousins to the Jews. But now we're entering the territory that the Jewish people said was the place where pigs and dogs lived. And God has to do something remarkable to get them to jump this cultural barrier. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that Peter is on the rooftop praying, and he has a vision. And the vision is of a large sheet, Acts chapter 10, a large sheet coming down out of heaven full of unclean animals that Jewish people will not touch. And he's hungry because it's about lunchtime, and a voice says, take and kill and eat. 
And Peter shrinks in horror, and he says, never. I will not eat unclean animals. And the voice says, do not call what God has made unclean. And the vision repeats, and Peter must be about as dense and thick-skulled as I am because it comes a third time, three times that vision. And on the other side of the cultural fence is Cornelius. And Cornelius has a dream, and the dream says, go and call Peter from the city of Joppa and summons him to come to your home. And if that preparatory work <laughs> had not been done by God and the Holy Spirit, Peter would never have gone. He, said, he would have said, me, go to unclean pigs and dogs. It's just not going to happen. That's how. And so Peter goes and uh, he begins to explain the gospel and God nudges him aside. Even before he can finish his sermon, God pushes him aside and intervenes. And the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household. And when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, he's in big trouble. They say to him, Peter, what's this we hear? You went into a Gentile's house? What's the matter with you? And he says, well, let me tell you the story. The Holy Spirit fell on them as he did on us at the beginning. So what happened on the day of Pentecost now happens ten years later in the house of Cornelius. And when Peter says that, the Jews all say, oh, well, then we've got nothing to say. Now, in the meantime, after this, Paul and Barnabas set out from Jerusalem, and they travel all up through Syrian Antioch, all the way up to Derby and Iconium in Lycaonia, and they planting churches, and they go through uh, Cyprus and plant churches, and there's a great spread of the gospel. And uh, some Jewish people in Jerusalem celebrate it, but they are also filled with angst. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea. So from Jerusalem they followed in Paul's footsteps. And they were teaching the brothers, these new Christians, these new churches, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and there had been much debate. And Peter stood up and reminded them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James, this is the brother of Jesus, replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Simon Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind <coughs> pardon me, may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim this, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So it's a request. This really is offensive to us, if you don't mind. And they exercise their liberty. Uh, thus reads God's word to us. Just in passing, you will notice that there's no primacy of Peter. It was James who was the moderator of the council. And that's relevant in our day and age, given a new pope and so on. And also, this is where the Presbyterianism, this is where Presbyterianism derives <laughs> its form of church government. When there are issues in a church, we go and form a council, and presbytery is happening, and general assembly next month, and this is the way we function. So let's talk about the dynamics here and see if we can find a way that is relevant to us. There was a Jewish culture 
that had to be protected. It was built on a hodgepodge of different things. Uh, the nation was privileged. They had the promises. God protected them and guided them in, in history. Uh, there were deliverances and chastisings that went into their identity. It centered on the law. You and I have an identity as well. And Green Tree Church has an identity. Uh, so that little dot reflects identity. Could be the Jerusalem Church, could be... You, me, Green Tree Church, Kirkwood, uh, you can apply that identity anywhere you like. And uh, we protect that identity too. It's, let's call it our primary ID. It's constructed from a number of places. This is just a few suggestions. Your education has gone into your identity. You know, first question in St. Louis, what high school did you go to? <laughs> Hey, I'm ribbing you. Laugh. <laughs> family. Uh, constantly amazed at the family connections. It uh, seems every week I discover new connections in our church and community. Our genes. I am who I am because of my father and my mother and my grandfather and grandmother. My experience. It's, it's wide as the world in my case. Personality. My religion, it's part of my identity. The region I live in, Kirkwood is different, I believe, to other parts of St. Louis. Country, there are people outside. So it's exceptionally con complex. Now what we do with that primary identity is that we build a wall around it in order to protect it. After all, we've got nothing else. That, that's who I actually am when I consider who I am, all those things come into it and give me an identity and I build a wall and a moat around it and then I put up electrified razor wire. That's my natural instinct. I cling to it. I'm suspicious of people outside of that wall. It's soft when I'm in my own community. So here in Green Tree, I feel comfortable and uh, these are my people, so it's a soft wall there. It's porous, uh, but generally I feel threatened by people outside of this primary identity. What happens, I label it, and I label those outside of the identity. And uh, then if I'm really getting threatened by it, I fear it, and I start to demonize And I start uh, isolating myself. And you threaten my existence, therefore I will protect it. And what it does ultimately when it meets another person, it promotes conflict and it begins to polarize. And ultimately, if it goes far enough, you will have the Boston bombings and the Twin Towers and all the wars in the world. But the gospel dynamic is very different. You see, that primary identity has actually been shattered. That's not who God wants us to be. That identity is one which develops out of rebellion against God. 
And what happens in the gospel and what happened on the day of Pentecost and on the Gentile Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit renews and remakes and we end up with an identity that is restored in Christ and He swallows up our walls and takes down the razor wire. And this all is by faith alone. No church can give it. Green Tree cannot give it to you. We had a signpost saying we will point you to the one who can give you this new identity. It's Jesus. We'll take you there, but we can't give it to you. It's by grace alone. You can't earn it. I've got a way of meeting people who I think will come to Christ, and I take them a Bible always, and I say, here's, here's a Bible for you now that you've confessed Jesus. And the usual reaction, 99% of the time, people say, oh, let, let me pay you for it. And they get out their wallet. And I say, you know, if you want to pay for it, it's a million bucks. I said, it's like the gospel. You'd like to pay for it, but it's more than you can afford. So why don't you just accept it as a gift, like the gospel? And usually they start crying. And then I start bawling as well. <laughs> it's by Christ alone, not through circumcision or baptism or any other religious rite. And it's by Scripture alone. It's found in the Bible. So this gospel dynamic makes us then have a restored image in Christ which is secure. I, you can't threaten me. You can bring whatever you like. Like those Jewish people, I will bear my neck and say, kill me, but I'm so secure in Christ that I don't care. Uh, this new identity empties itself and it's accepting and loving and it's really listening. And that old identity used to say always, no, 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 but, but I've got the truth. No, but you see, you've got to do it this way. And God is saying, yes, yes, I see you, I hear you, I understand you. And you've heard this this morning, so if you want time, that is because it was in our, in our call to worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. God's message to you is not yes and no. It's yes. And your life is a response to the yes of God because all of your life is saying to God, Amen. I'm yes to you as well. Here's how you've heard it as well. It's a divine dynamic. And so the Apostle Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped or to cling to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. 
And being formed, found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So our prime identity, we are willing to nail to the cross. That's what Jesus says when he says, take up your cross and follow me. And then listen how he lives it out. When Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. And when the Pharisees saw this happening, <coughs> saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit. And they lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? And then this story. One of the Pharisees asked him over for a meal. He went to the house and sat down. And just then a woman of the village, the town harlot, Having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisees, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet. And letting down her hair, she dried his feet and kissed them and anointed them with the perfume. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who's falling all over him. You think Jesus didn't know? Come on. And then this final story. When Jesus, on the road from Jericho, uh, got to the tree, he looked up and there's Zacchaeus. So scared to approach Jesus, but just longing to see him that he climbs a tree above the crowds just in order to get a glimpse. And Jesus knows and stops and looks him in the eye and says, Today is my day to be a guest in your house. And Zacchaeus scrambles out of the tree, hardly believing his good luck, delighted to take Jesus home with him. And everyone... His own disciples too. Everyone who saw the incident was indignant and grumped. What business does he have getting cozy with this crook? So who causes you to bristle, my brother, my sister? Now we get to the hard part of the sermon. Maybe you're going to run me out of town. What boxes have you constructed that you are defending Here's a list of the people just sitting for one minute and thinking over the 50 years of my experience with Christ. Here's, here's just a few things that popped into my mind, in my heart. I have demonized gays. I've despised the poor. There was a time when I thought no Democrat could possibly be a Christian. I've also thought no Republican can possibly be a Christian. <laughs> I've despised Muslims. Politicians is a favorite one of mine. I keep having to tear that wall down. Lawyers. Atheists. Uh, your spouse. 
You've had days being really angry with your spouse. Your ex, if you divorced or separated. Tattoos. That's an incomplete list you added for yourself. These people, my friend, are the ends of your earth. There's some glass to swallow. Because you see, Christ died for sinners. He didn't come for the righteous. The least, at least you derive that much satisfaction. At least you can call them sinners. <laughs> but then you remember, Paul's strategy was this. Our firm decision is to work from this focused center. One man died for all. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. And because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look, but we look inside. And what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone and a new life burgeons. Just look at it. Look at it. Look here. Here's a sinner. The life of Christ in him. And all this comes from God who settled the relation between us and him and then called us to settle our relationship with each other. God put the square, the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. And God has given us the task of telling everyone what he's doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and their sins and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. Now, it's important to know that by saying yes to all these people, I'm not condoning them. When I say yes, I'm not agreeing with their lifestyle. Nothing like that. I'm just doing what God did with me. He accepted me exactly where I was and said, let's get on with life together. And he sorted out all the weird stuff in my life. There's still a lot of it, and he's still at work. And you will do as God did with you. You'll add an and, yes, I hear you. You're a twisted, tangled mess, I hear you. I understand that. And here's my take on it. And here's another view. Christ died for sinners, so welcome. And you offer it not in hatred, but in love. So here are two conclusions. First one is that a healthy church is a messy church. We should be a total mess around the edges of our church. If we are reaching out into our culture where there are all sorts of strange and weird and wonderful people and things and events happening, and we are 
actually reaching them and they are being drawn into our congregation. There's a mess there. It's theological. You can't expect someone who's been studying mysticism all his life and now comes to know Jesus to suddenly know what the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed mean. I mean I've been to seminary and been ministry 50 years. I still don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I do know. But please, don't ask me. <laughs> so now I want this brand new believer to know all that. You know, it's like the, the blind man healed by Jesus. The Pharisees give him a theological quiz. Did it happen on the Sabbath? Who did it? And he says, listen, all I can tell you is this. I was blind, but now I can see. So we should expect mess, and the healthier we are, the more messy we will be around the fringes. We've got our identity. We're secure in Christ. We can accept people in here who've got different views. We can debate and talk and wrestle and have the Holy Spirit convict them of their sin and help them come out of it and through it. And then the second thing is a healthy church stretches its members. This is stretching us, isn't it? The people we bristle at, we prefer to say, never, I'm never going to talk to them. But this is stretching you, and it's liberating you, quite honestly. So we are not accepting them as the finished product. We're accepting them as we ourselves want to be accepted as on the journey. Francis of Assisi was a rich nobleman's son. He despised the poor. He was especially horrified by lepers. And then one day, God got hold of him, and he was subdued by the grace and love of God. And he began his journey of faith, still living in his arrogance. His spiritual life was going nowhere. One day he was riding in his finery on his beautiful pedigreed stallion when he got the unmistakable urge to get off his horse and go and embrace a leper who was begging by the wayside. And the voice wouldn't let go of him. So he overcame his horror. He dismounted and went to a figure smelling of decay and ripe with infection and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And a wave of pure and intense joy washed over him and remained with him. Who is the leper that Christ is urging you to embrace? Our prayer time is a little bit different this morning. If you would bow in prayer, I invite you to a minute of silence. Just reflect on the marvel of the grace of God. The spectacular nature of our God who came looking for you and found you and embraced you.
you were the leper. He got off his pedigreed background, humbled himself, served you, died for you. Now with a flood of relief, let go of all your angst about people that you think threaten your identity. And let's trust God because our identity is secure in Christ. And after a, another brief silence, uh, Chip is going to lead us in a prayer. It's a prayer in which we will sing who God is and then our response to God. And I invite you to pray this prayer in a, a song.